finally here. We're going to start talking about Romans. Finally, third part of the Romans series, and we are finally opening the book of Romans. Um, hopefully, we've laid a bit of a foundation that allows us to read Romans with fresh eyes, with a new perspective. Um, or maybe you've had this perspective all along, and it will be encouraging to you that someone else out there uh, agrees Um and so, yeah, we're going to look at Romans, uh, the initial part of the book. We're going to uh, dive deep into Romans 3 and 4, especially in this session. And we're going to look at what is sin, uh, what is it that identifies us as God's children, and faith, what is faith, and, and hopefully uproot some different beliefs about those uh, those identities of sin, of, of being God's child, of faith, and and kind of turn them around and, and, and see them from new perspectives. And so I hope you enjoy it. Here we go. Today I wanted to start looking at the book of Romans, and um, Romans is a really interesting book. Uh, you know, we talked yesterday about how there's different uh, types of documents contained in the in the Bible. Well, Romans is a letter written by Paul. I'm sure you all know that, um, and it's written to a group of people in Rome, hence the name Romans. Um, what a lot of us um, don't know, though, is again some of the context. And so, context we talked about yesterday is really important. And so it's easy for us to think of the book of Romans written to a bunch of Roman citizens doing their Roman thing. And we, you know, we pull up these like um, connotations of what does a Roman look like? I don't know if you guys in, in Germany studied uh, the Romans in primary school or, or high school, but in England, it was quite a big thing. I don't know why, but we, we, we studied the Romans. I guess it's quite uh, important to the history of Europe and things. Uh, but we studied the Romans and you'd learn about what's on their shields and, you know, and the big toffee hat thing, helmets. I remember making one of those. Um, and, you know, all these kind of different things that you, you study. And, and it's, so it's easy for us to, when we read Paul writing to the Romans, think of um, this, this Roman person, that, that, you know, a group of people in a church that come from a Roman background. They've been worshipping Roman gods and, you know, we'd learn all about the Roman gods and, and all this different stuff. But actually that's not who Paul's writing to in his letter to the Romans. Um, the letter to the Romans is written to the Jewish population in Rome. Um, and so when Jesus was around, there were lots of Jews all throughout the known world. You know, I mean, people traveled. And so um, there were Jewish uh, trade people that had gone to different regions and different things like that. And we, and we find out that actually um, the, 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 the tradition of where this church in Rome came from um, the, the Christian church in Rome, the tradition is held, uh, and so this is just tradition. It's not, you know, in the Bible, and, and there's not a huge amount of documentation to support it, but there's some documentation, um, is that some of the people on the day of Pentecost who were there in the first day when the Holy Spirit came down and everyone got saved. You remember those 3,000 people got saved and Peter gave his great sermon and, and everyone got filled with the Holy Spirit and everyone was running around talking in tongues and all this happened. Well, the, the tradition is that some of the people that were there, and these were all people that were um, uh, there on pilgrimage, weren't they? Do you remember the story of they had come to Jerusalem for the Passover, for the, for the process of, uh, um, of pilgrimage to come to Jerusalem to connect with God? And in that moment, they got saved. And then they went back to their different regions, the different parts around the world that they had come from to come to Jerusalem. And in that, there were some people that had come from the Roman synagogue, the, the Roman Jewish community. They had come on their pilgrimage to Jerusalem, and then they got saved. They got filled with the Spirit. They had this amazing encounter with God, and then they went back to Rome. And then um, if you've been in church long enough, you can imagine what happened when they went back to Rome and went to their Jewish community and went, started talking about this Messiah, Jesus, and all this different stuff people went uh what <laughs> and so there was a uh we would call it today a church split <laughs> you know and so there was a, a slight uh 
difference of opinion on Jesus in this Jewish community and some of them left and started what was now the Roman church. This is the church that Paul was writing to in his book of Romans. And so the book of Romans is written to a group that there would have been some Roman citizen, you know, some some non-Jewish people in that group, but predominantly the group is Jewish. Okay, so maybe a few people got saved that were from different backgrounds, but most of the people had actually come from this Jewish group and started this, this church. Um, and so when we see that Paul's writing to them, um, that, that feeds in a lot of information for us. One of the things it feeds in is that we know that they haven't had a lot of input. They've had some input. Paul sent some people to minister with them and to be with them, but actually they haven't had a huge amount of input. And so you might imagine it. Can you imagine on Sunday morning, okay, so someone comes into Kingsway Sunday, well, Sunday afternoon for us, someone comes into church and you've never seen them before. Um, and I don't know, maybe they're wearing Jewish garb, you know, so you can see clearly, oh, they're a Jewish person, okay? And they come in, and we just have our service and whatever happens, and at some point, they just have this amazing experience. Maybe the Holy Spirit falls on them, and they fall over backwards, and they're lying on the floor completely like, you know, in a trance or something's happened. They get up, and then they leave. You don't even get to speak to them. They just, they're gone. Um, And you speak to the person at the door and say, hey, did you catch that person's name, or should we try and follow up and get in touch with them? And they said, oh, yeah, that guy was uh, called Greg, and he said he's going to this country to plant a church. You'd be like, wait, what? (laughs) I mean, he just, I mean, he clearly was from a different religion. He came, he had one encounter, and then left to plant a church. You would be like, wait, well, does he know what it is to be a Christian? I mean, to, to, uh, to run a church? I mean, you'd have all these questions going around in your head, wouldn't you? I mean, it's kind of a terrifying thought in one sense because sometimes we can think that actually it does come down to us and not God, right? Um, And so in one sense, you're like, well, of course, God has got this. He'll be fine. But in another sense, you're thinking, but yeah, but what is he teaching? Like, I mean, is he going to be teaching grace and love or is he bringing a lot of other baggage from his old religion or is he bringing some other stuff? And what even happened in that encounter? I don't know what happened. And, And so Paul you can see throughout the book of Acts seems to be struggling. And even in in Romans, you see as we read through Romans, he seems to be struggling with this concept of like, I've not been able to meet with these guys and invest in them and teach them and and spend time discipling them. You know, you look at Ephesus, he spent years in Ephesus, Colossae, you know, these different locations. He went and spent years in those places, Galatia. He went and sat and taught them and discipled them and, and raised up leaders and said, okay, these are some solid leaders and they'll keep you... Uh, on the right path as you continue on your journey and as you spread this gospel throughout this region. And he hadn't done that in Rome. Um, And he felt, um, on some sense, really responsible for that, which is kind of crazy, right? Because it's not on his shoulders. I mean, all of Christianity was supposed to be going to the ends of the world. Um, But he he did seem to take a lot of uh, responsibility for this. Um, Maybe part of this is that he's a Roman citizen. Paul was a Roman citizen, we find out towards the end of Acts, don't we? and so maybe there's something of that. Maybe there's something of his, he, he feels um, uh, a kind of kindred spirit, a love for Rome. And uh, maybe there's something in that. But he, what we do see is throughout Acts, he's consistently trying to get to Rome. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but all the way through the journey, he's like, right, Rome, next up, I want to get to Rome. And, and then, you know, an angel appears in a dream and says, no, you can't go. You've got to go to there first. And he says, okay, so he goes over there. And as soon as he's finished there, he's like, right, okay, but Rome. And then, you know, he goes into a, he gets a vision and it's like, no, you can't go there. You've got to go over here. And it's like, okay. And he's like, as soon as he's finished there, he's like, right, but Rome. And then he gets shipwrecked, you know. And it just seems like every step of trying to get to Rome, it, he can't get there. But you can see this passion and this drive. I want to get to Rome. I want to equip this church. And part of it as well is um, 
you wonder if, Ro uh, if Rome had a significance in the sense of its government and the fact that it ruled the region. Maybe Paul thought, you know, if I can really reach these people and this government and the, the military leaders and all these people, then maybe we could make a real difference in the region. You know, it's, it's easy for us to start thinking like that, isn't it? Like, well, if we just, um, and we see this in America today, if we just get the right president in, that's a Christian president, then everything will change and the world will become Christian somehow. You know what I mean? But it's easy for us to think like that, isn't it? Like, oh, this person's really significant and inf influential. If I can change their minds, then everything will change. Um, and so Paul's really passionate about getting to Rome. And it's in this place that Paul writes to the Romans. It's in this place of um, a desire to disciple them, to equip them, to help them uh, become a, a healthy, holistic church that understands the gospel and is preaching the gospel. Um, and doesn't have error, doesn't have uh, confusion. It's in that place that he writes to Rome because he knows I'm not getting there anytime soon for whatever reason. Um, and so that gives us a bit of understanding as we approach Romans that we understand Paul is writing to Jews, not to uh, you know uh, people from a pagan background, predominantly, there's some probably pagan background people. Um, and he's writing with a desire to disciple them, to teach them, to equip them, to, to, to develop them as a church in the same way that he did in Colossae, excuse me, or Galatia or uh, Ephesus or any of these other places. He's got that desire, but he can't get there physically. And what we find, therefore, is actually Romans is one of the most um, comprehensive, detailed uh, letters of all of Paul's writing that describe what it is to be a Christian and what it is to come out of old religion and into this new belief that is Christianity. Um, and a lot of it's because, you know, when he writes to Colossae, you, know, you read Colossians, you read Galatians, you read uh, Ephesians, you know, you read these books and he doesn't need to do that. He spent years teaching them this. So his books for those guys, you know, Corinthians and uh, Thessalonians, it's a lot more, um, it's a lot more managing questions and well what do we do about this and how would we handle this and what about this it's more of that than actually let me understand and teach you the foundations of the gospel and so Romans is a beautiful book because it really dives in and teaches the foundations of the gospel um, and so yeah so when we when we open up we don't have time at all unfortunately um, we, we just don't have the, the time to read right through Romans but um, I'm probably going to give a, a brief overview kind of up to chapter 3. We'll start reading in chapter 3 through to about 7, and I'll maybe give a kind of cliff note ending um, for the other ones. But, um, but the bulk of, of the message I want to focus on is kind of Romans 3 through to sort of 8. Um, but Romans starts up, and, and it's quite an interesting uh, start, really, for a letter. It's not the most encouraging uh, of, of letters. Um, it's quite, in fact, maybe a discouraging letter. Um, Paul, uh, he, he outlines... Things aren't good, guys. Life for people, not great. Situation people find themselves in, not good. If you had your daily Bible reading and you read maybe like two chapters a day, if your two chapters a day were Romans 1 and 2, you'd go away thinking, oh, crap, right? Because it's just, it's not, it's not particularly encouraging. He says, look, you know, all of us are in this really bad place and, and you know, we think we, we've got it and we think we're great, but the truth is we're all pretty messed up. We all kind of screw up in all sorts of different ways and we all find ourselves not really measuring up to the standards we know that God would want. This perfect, amazing being is a pretty high standard and we really don't measure up particularly well. And he talks about the different ways. He talks about some people um, falling into certain sins or that sin. And he talks about how even, he's like, look, and even, even if you haven't a God preached to you, I mean, creation preaches to us. Creation shows us a better way and we still miss it. You know, we still mess up. And so he's really laying this real um, hard ground of like, things aren't good, guys. And we really need to kind of 
um, we have so much more to do if we're going to please God. And, and you remember he's talking to who? Jews, okay? And, and the important thing that we understand is that the Jewish religion revolved around doing the right thing to please God. I mean, that was the foundation of the Jewish religion was if you do the right things, you please God. If you do the wrong things, you anger God. Um, if you do the right things, you're blessed. If you do the wrong things, you're cursed. I mean, this is just the way that the Jewish transaction worked. And there were sacrifices to fill in the gaps for when you drop the ball, you know. Um, but Paul is talking to people that understand this. So he's saying, look, you know you aren't measuring up. And they're, they're, they're not dumb. You know, they've got the laws and they've tried to do the laws and they know that they can't do the laws. And if you remember, remember the culture that Jesus came into with um, the Pharisees. Remember how they had the laws, but they added hundreds of other laws as well. You know, you couldn't spit in mud because it was working and all sorts of little things that weren't even in the laws. And this is the sort of culture that these Jewish people were coming from, that, that it was just law upon law upon law. And they, they really were trying to do the right thing, but it was quite a struggle. Um, and so Paul's writing to these guys and he's saying, look, this is tough. Like it's, it, you, you've got a lot of work to do. Um, and I want to pick up in, in Romans 3 because there's something happens in Romans 3 where um, Paul changes everything. And, and actually, it revolves around one of our favorite Bible verses, okay? So Romans 3.23 is one of our favorite Bible verses because you don't even need to look at the Bible verse. I guarantee you know it. All have sinned and fallen short of what? The glory of God. We all know that verse, right? I mean, have you guys heard that like a million times? We love quoting it again and again and again and again. But the funny part is actually that that verse is actually the, the, the linchpin of Romans. So Paul lays down this terrible, 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 terrible news. And then that verse is where everything changes. And so I'm going to start reading in Romans 3. You can read along. I'm reading from the ESV. So uh, you can follow along if, if it's radically different. The ESV is quite a literal translation. So if you're using a literal translation, you should be able to follow along quite uh, okay. If you're reading like the NIV or NLT or something like that, you might struggle. And so... If, if you're struggling to follow and read two translations at once, just close your eyes and listen and you can read it later. Or Romans 3, we're going to start at verse 1. That's 23. Yeah. No, that's fine. Um, okay, so he's, remember he's talking to the Jews and so he says, look, then what advantage has the Jew um, or what advantage is the value of circumcision? Much in every way to begin with the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does the faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means let God be true, though every one were a liar, as it was written, that you may be justified in your words and prevailed where you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show us the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath upon us? I speak in a human way. By no means, for then how would God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. So I'm going to get a gloss over that. I just want to kind of give you um, a bit of a background. But he's, he's again, he's talking to the Jews. He's saying, look, um, you know, um, we, we feel we're at an advantage. God entrusted us with his, his law and his oracles. Um, but that's not necessarily the case. Um, but, you know, you could be uh, said, it could be said that, you know, while we kind of screw up, it makes God look bigger because he obviously is so different. So we're crap and he's good. And, it, and if you look at um, a diamond in a pile of poop, it looks even better. Mm -hmm. Kind of, you know, I mean, that's the kind of concept he's putting across. And so he says, so we might as well be even worse, right? Because then the diamond looks even better. Um, and he's saying that's what people are saying about us. Um, and he says, well, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, 
not at all. Okay, so he's saying like, you know, you might say that God might look even better around the Gentiles who are so messed up because at least the Jews are trying to do the right thing. Yeah. And he says, well, are we Jews better off? Because we're trying to do the right thing. So we at least look a little bit more like God, right? Us Jews look really like God. Um, yeah, they found that out. It wasn't so true when Jesus came along, didn't they? Um, and he says, no, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are still under sin. As it's written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless no one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their path are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And so he's quoting uh, from the Old Testament there. Um, and he's basically saying, <laughs> doesn't look good, guys. I mean, that, that does not... You read through that, it's not like you can go, yay, right? I mean, that's a pretty condemning passage. He's saying, look, everything you say is disgusting. Everything you do is disgusting. You are pretty worthless. He says, you are worthless. Um, And so it's a really condemning message. And he says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Now, we're going to talk about the law tomorrow in great depth. So I'm going to kind of just put that to the side there. But what he's basically saying is, look, as soon as you introduce a law, you immediately fail, (laughs) right? And so when you have a law, do this, you immediately end up not doing it, and you screw up. Or it says, don't do this, and what do you end up doing? You do it. The easiest way to see that is go put like a piece of candy in a room with a kid and say, don't eat that candy. I'll be back in five minutes, right? I mean, <laughs> what's going to happen? The candy's going to get eaten. I mean, it's just the way it is. Um, but now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. So this is a key part, right? Because this is, this is where everything's changing. Okay, so this is, we're coming up to our verse 23. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. So he's saying, look, God has a righteousness that he's, he's just revealed to us that is separate from the law. It's got nothing to do with if you do what's right or wrong. He's saying, although the law and the prophets bear witness it. So the law and the prophets, were, they, were, they were setting us up for what this is. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now that's our big verse that we love to quote. But actually we quote one verse too early. Okay, so he's saying, look, there's no distinction between Gentiles or Jews. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But the next verse is, and are freely justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. So what's his point? His point isn't that all have sinned. That's part of his point, but that's not his point. You know, we run around going, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. His point is what? Not that all have sinned, but all have been freely justified by the grace of God. That is a much bigger point to be focusing on. You know, we talk about the good news of the gospel. We kind of fixate on the bad news part sometimes, you know. The bad news is all of us are screwed up. The good news is, and all of us have been let off the hook through Jesus. You know, there's this amazing salvation that is there for us. And so at this point, we see a radical shift because Paul just throws away the concept of fixating on the bad news. 
And so we, we start with Romans, and he's setting them up. But why is he doing this? Okay, so, so he, we now see, and we'll, we'll keep reading, but he shifts into just starting to talk about how big God is and how amazing what Jesus has done and how it wraps up everyone, and it's so amazing. It's bigger than sin. It's bigger than everything. I mean, he gets really excited about this, and as we read on, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and more and more amazing. Um, so why did he start talking so much terrible stuff? Well, the key is you have to remember he's writing to Jews. So the Jews were uh, different to the Gentiles because the Gentiles knew they weren't living by the same code. They could see the Jews wandering around and they knew they weren't living by that standard. You know, they had a different set of standards. So it was, it's one thing for them to come along and say, hey, this is what's going on. But like when you went to the Jews and you said, God sees you as filthy, they would go, no, no, he doesn't. Because we've got a whole bunch of rules and regulations. And yeah, we mess up sometimes, but we've got the sacrifices and you know, we, we're doing this and doing that. And so he's really wanting to hammer home, look, you guys are no different to the Gentiles here. Actually, the rules aren't doing any favors for you. They aren't saving you. They aren't a, doing a good enough job. You can't do a good enough job. These rules are impossible to keep and they cannot have you please God. There's, there's something that is gonna always leave you feeling doubtful of, am I close enough to God? Am I doing enough, right? And, and I don't know about you, if, if, if any of you have lived in a kind of more um, conservative backgrounds with, with the church, maybe you've lived in a background where there is lots of rules and you know, you can't do this and you're supposed to do this and you're supposed to do that and you're supposed to do this. Um, if you have lived in that environment, you know what I'm talking about. You know the feeling when you go back to, when you go to bed at night and you go, man, do I need forgiveness. I really feel far from God. In fact, you know, I used to do this. It's so funny now I think about it. And it's, it's funny because my parents didn't teach me this or anything. I just kind of, I don't know what, how I picked this up. I just picked it up. But, you know, at the end of the day, like if I'd done sins and, or terrible things, I wouldn't even ask for forgiveness because I felt God was so far away and I felt so bad that I couldn't ask for forgiveness. So I kind of had to try and be really good for a while before I'd even go and ask him for forgiveness. Anyone done that? You know, like, that's so crazy, isn't it? But, but it's kind of what's built into our head a little bit. And so Paul knows this, that the Jews have some of this stuff going on. You know, that even though they've got systems in place for forgiveness and things like that, they've got those nagging doubts. There's a rule here that is just above and beyond what they can do. And I mean, they're outrageously complex in and of themselves, never mind all the extra rules that the Pharisees add on top of that. Um, and so there's constantly that nagging doubt of like, oh, I feel far from God. I really mess up. I, I am not the perfect Jew that I should be. I'm not good enough. And Paul just comes in and, and grabs a hold of that doubt and blows it up into a massive thing and says, see that doubt you feel? It's real. You really are in a bad place because this law isn't going to work. And so he's really agitating what the Jews are doing. Um, and if anything, it's a like, super, super offensive message because this is how the Jews do life. Like this is everything to them. And, and to say that you're no different from the Gentiles is so offensive because that was huge to the Jews. We are different to the Gentiles. We're God's favorite people. He picked us. We're the important ones. They're not. They're not God's people. They're not God's country. They're not God's nation. We are. So we're important and we um, are seen differently by God than, than they are. And Paul goes, nope, nope, you're just in exactly the same place. You're both completely screwed. And so, but he needs to level the playing fields before you can have this new opportunity for grace because this new opportunity for grace, this new righteousness that comes apart from the law, you have to get to the point where you're going to put the law to the side before you can actually embrace it. You can't have both. Um, and so he, he comes uh, out of that place and so he says, look, you know, um, 
and all are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, 25 now, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Um, then what becomes of our boasting? Is it excluded? By what kind of law? By, what, by a law of works? No, by the law of faith. So he says, look, you can't really boast anymore. So before the Jews would boast, we go, well, we've got the law and we're doing the law and that's why we can look better than the Gentiles who don't have the law. They're not trying to do the right thing. And he says, well, now all of a sudden we're not really allowed to boast. The only thing we can boast in is that we've got faith in someone else that did it for us. That's it. Um, and we'll talk about faith in a little bit. Um, boasting, like to brag or to, yeah. Um, but the, even that, we'll, we'll look at faith in a little bit, but faith isn't even something we can boast in because it turns out faith in itself is a gift. Um, and so anyway, we'll, we'll keep going because we'll touch on that in the, I think the next couple of chapters. Um, or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since God is one. Who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? So he's saying, look, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, faith is how God's going to do his justification. He's not wanting to operate under the law anymore. Do we then, do we then or overthrow the law by his faith? By no means, on the contrary, we uphold the law. And so we're going to talk about the law tomorrow again. So um, I'll put that to the side for just now. So let's jump into Romans 4. And this is where um, we see some more of this stuff going on. Because you have to remember... Um, Jewish people, Jewish audience, you've got to keep that in your mind over and over and over because it's easy to, to like step out of it and then read it as if it was written to us or at least read it as if it's written to, to kind of more pagan communities like some of the other letters. And it's like, no, this is written to Jews. These Jews have built everything around their, their nation, their being God's favorites. They have the laws. They've got their, their um, hierarchy. So, you know, I, my great, 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 great grandfather is Abraham, you know? Uh, or I'm, you know, I mean, when you, they descend it back, Abraham is their father, right? I mean, and so the, they can boast in that. You know, they look at the, the, the guy down the road from, you know, Ephesus or Rome or Colossae, and they go, well, they're not Abraham's kid. I am. So I'm obviously something that God prefers because God will make a nation through Abraham. You know, you'll be a blessing to be, you'll be blessed to be a blessing. You know, uh, that's, that's me. I'm one of the sand, the stars in the sky. I'm one of the sand uh, on the beach. You know, that's me. That's not them. They're one of the other people that God doesn't really care about. And so when we go into uh, Romans 4, I want you to, to, to feel that, right? Okay, that's where you're coming from. And check out how offensive this is because Paul is going to start really messing with their idea of them being God's favorites. Um, and they really need to let go of being God's favorites if they're going to understand that God doesn't have favorites. You're all his favorite. I mean, that's what Paul is really kind of setting up. And so he says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? So he brings up Abraham, right? This is their dad. This is, this is the person that it all comes down to. So it's because I'm one of Abraham's great, 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 great grandkids I can say, look at me, I'm Jewish, I'm better than everyone. And he says, well, if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as a due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the, un 
the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is a man against whom the Lord will not count the sin. Okay, so stop there right now and we'll just, we'll think about this. Like, what's he just said? He said, look, you guys think you're Abraham's kids and you're, so you're his favorites. And he says, but what did Abraham do that was so great that made him God's favorite? He said, he didn't do anything. He just believed God. That's it. And then God, because he believed him, said, you're righteous. That's all Abraham did. And he says, so really, it's not he did anything. It's not like you can do the same thing Abraham did because Abraham didn't do anything. Really important that we, uh, we see that. It's not about what Abraham did. And so he's saying, look, so at the same way, if you're doing, then it doesn't count to you as a, a gift of righteousness. It's your, it's your wages. He says that, you know, doing something you get a wage. You don't get a gift. You don't come and, uh, you know, work for me in my business for 40 hours a week and I go, all right, here's your gift. No, you're like, pay me. It's my, that's my wage. You owe me that. And he's saying the same thing. He's saying, like, you're not, you're not getting a gift of righteousness. You're getting paid your wages for what you do. And if you don't do well, you might not get paid as good a wage, right? That's, that's the implication. He says, but those that actually simply believe get this gift of righteousness. They get what Abraham got. And then he talks about, well, even Moses saw that this might come about one day. And he quotes, uh, Moses, sorry, even David saw this. And he quotes David saying, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man in whom the Lord will not count his sin. And so David foresaw that one day there would be, and he's not talking about himself, is he? He's saying, blessed is the man. He's not saying, blessed am I. He's saying, there's, there's someone out there that God's going to look on him and go, I don't see your sins. I don't care about your lawless deeds. I, I, I see something deeper. I see something better. And I'm giving you a gift of righteousness. Um, so is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? So this is then Paul's bringing up the question. He's saying, okay, so I'm kind of trying to mess with your mind about Abraham. So he's saying, so is this just for the Jews or for the Gentiles also maybe? He says, for we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he'd been circumcised? So you have to remember, again, this culture, Jewish people were obsessed with cutting off the tips of their penis. Um, And so this is how you knew if you were a Jew. Little snip, okay? Now that's a bit weird, um, and I don't really understand a lot of this. You know, you think of like Paul got Timothy to get circumcised when he went to see the leaders in uh, in Jerusalem. And you often think, well, like what happened when Timothy walked in the room? Did they check? Like, because otherwise, like, why did he need to do it? Like, I mean, is there a process where you check? All right, lift your, lift your robes. Okay, he's a Jew. Good, good job, guys. You know, like, I mean, I'm kind of joking, but I'm also kind of like, seriously, this is weird. Um, but they, they're obsessed with, with circumcision, okay? This is a massive thing for the Jews because why? Abraham instigated this whole process of circumcision. It came about and, and, and it was a massive deal. Do you remember Moses' kids and there was an issue there and then um, he then had to circumcise his kids much further on because um, he, wa- he wasn't, according to the, the tradition of Jethro, his, his father-in-law, and they came across problems and then when he circumcised his kids, every, all the problems stopped. And So, I mean, this is consistent throughout Jewish history. We need to circumcise our, our males. It's how we show we're being obedient to God. We're doing the thing that God wants. Um, and so he's saying, look, well, did Abraham become righteous um, after or before he was circumcised? Okay, so he's going to start messing because, again, the Jews, 
they're, these guys are in Rome, and they're sitting there thinking, we're better than everyone because we're circumcised, like Abraham and like all our forefathers. And so Nepal's going, well, let's think about circumcision for a second. When Was that before or after God said, well, I'm really pleased with you, and I count you as righteous? He says, it wasn't after, was it? Uh, it was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believed without being circumcised so that righteousness could be counted to them as well. So what's Paul just said? He says, look, uh, Abraham was told, you're righteous, you're great, I love you because you believe, not because of anything you do, now you can become circumcised. And the circumcision was a mark to say, hey, God is pleased with me. But what's interesting is Paul then says, and the reason God did it this way around is so that everyone that's not circumcised can also find that. It's got nothing to do with whether you're circumcised or not. Now we read that and we're like, okay, yeah, 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 whatever, whatever, whatever. But the Jews that are reading this, you know, I, I often wonder about the guy that delivered this letter for Paul. You know, this, this guy shows up and he's like, hey guys, I've got a letter from Paul. Uh, here you go. Uh, just legged it after he handed it off. Because basically the whole book is quite offensive to the Jews. I mean, consistently, it's pretty um, offensive. And this is pretty darn offensive to a Jew, saying, look, your circumcision means nothing. People out there that aren't circumcised, they're just fine as well. You're just as messed up with your circumcision, and they're just as able to be saved without their circumcision. That's a big message to the Jews, because that isn't how they think. That isn't what they, um, how they see the world, and that isn't how they see their identity as a Jew, as, as this special person that is so much better than everyone else um, and so it says uh, so the purpose was to make him the father of all who believe with without being circumcised so that the righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised for Okay, so this is then we, when we start talking about faith, and we'll, we'll maybe go on a bit of a bunny trail, like we'll disappear out of this scripture, and I'll just start talking a bit about faith. But I want to read through this anyway, and we'll, we'll see how far we get. For the, purpose, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Okay, so when God promised Abraham, I'm going to make you the father of many nations, you know, I mean, all this different stuff. He doesn't do it when he says, he doesn't say, when you obey all my rules, then after that happens, we'll this will happen. No, it's as soon as Abraham believes, he says, okay, I'm going to make you the father of my people. You're going to be a blessing to the whole world. You're going to have multi uh, descendants as multiple as the stars in the sand. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but there is, uh, where there is no law, there is no transgression. I'm kind of glossing over the passages on law because we're going to talk about it tomorrow, so I don't want to distract too much, but we will touch on that stuff, don't worry. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith, who is the father, uh, faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it's written, I've made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God, in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. So what's he saying here? He's saying, look, Abraham, it turns out, is the father of many nations. And he's going right back to their founding scripture of what it is that says about Abraham. But the Jews seem to kind of gloss over this, right? Because Abraham's our father. 
And Paul's like, well, no, no, hold on, remember, what does the scripture actually say? He's the father of many nations. And how is he doing this? Because only one nation follows the law. He's doing it because Abraham isn't the father of the law. That's actually Moses. Abraham isn't the father of the law. Abraham is the father of faith. And anyone that has the same faith that Abraham had, believing in God, is Abraham's kid. Whoa, hold on, that's offensive. You can't say that. It's not about who has the faith of Abraham. It's about who does the same stuff as we do. This is massively, massively offensive to a Jewish person. You cannot say, well, I'm a child of Abraham too. That's a very offensive thing. It just, it, it's just not okay. Because they were very fixated on the blood physical line, you know? It's, it's, they wanted to literally, this is why they were big into their tribes and, you know, I'm a Levite, I'm a, yes, you know, I'm a Benjamite or whatever. You know, they really loved that because they could trace their lineage and find out their place in the Jewish tribe and they could guarantee, well, I am a son of Abraham. I, I come from this line. Um, and, and Paul just comes along and goes, nope, that's not how it works. That part, completely irrelevant. Being a son of Abraham is to do with believing like Abraham. And that, that was, like, this is such an offense to Jewish uh, culture. Like, I, can't, I can't overstate that enough. This is everything that Judaism is built on. Judaism is built, this whole religion is built on, I come from Abraham and I follow the rules that Moses gave us. Like, everything is built on that that they follow the rules, I'm circumcised, that I can trace my lineage back to Abraham. That is what they're all about. And Paul comes along and goes, nope, 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 that's not how we're going to do it. Let's read on a bit. Um, so it says, he promised him, I, will, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the, the gods in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that do not exist, in hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considers his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but also ours. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised the from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our generation. Uh, Justification. All right, let's stop and think about this, and, and we'll kind of like see where it takes us. But he's saying we need the faith of Abraham. Abraham's faith is what brought about his salvation, and actually, it's what about what will bring about our salvation. Having faith, it's about faith. And yet, do you notice something quite interesting there? Like, l let me read this again. Okay, now stop. And you guys have read the story of Abraham in Genesis, right? In, in Moses one, yeah. Um, so. Let, let me read this and see if you notice anything that seems a little odd, okay? It says, In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, 
so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was 100 years old or so, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no unbelief made him, sorry, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promises of God. But he grew strong in his faith and he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Does that seem strange to you? Why? Yeah, he doubted, exactly, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. So he sorted it out. I mean, we've got Ishmael. I mean, there's a lot of proof. I mean, the Bible contradicts what Paul's saying here. I mean, this, this kind of makes me laugh, right? So Paul's saying, look, right, it's by faith you're saved, not by what you do, not by being Abraham's kid. And actually, to be Abraham's child, you have to not do the laws and do the right thing or be born under the right family. To be Abraham's child, you need to believe like Abraham. Oh, interesting, right? Because it's quite interesting for us to say, well, you need to have faith, like faith, faith, faith. That's what you have to have to get saved. But have you ever stopped and thought, well, yeah, but my faith isn't that great. Does anyone ever have doubts in their life? Yeah? I mean, we all have doubts, right? We have doubts about ourselves. We have doubts about God. We've got doubts about others. We've got doubts in, in a multitude of different times. And it's, it's easy for us to go, well, okay, so it's all about faith. But then we start to think, oh, crap. I don't have the most amazing faith, if we're honest. Um, and this is why I think it's so funny that God picks Abraham to be the father of faith. Because if you go back and read Abraham's story, the guy has terrible faith. Like, his faith isn't very good. Like, you read his story from beginning to end. He screws up from beginning to end. He very rarely does well. I mean, he very rarely does well. Almost the whole way through, he screws up. I mean, <laughs> it's amazing to me. Like, Abraham gets this amazing word, and he, he goes, all right, great, yes, going to be the father of many nations. This is fantastic. And he goes and tells Sarah, and there's some ups and downs or whatever. They try and have a baby. doesn't work. So he goes, all right, let's try and figure out another option. And they figure out another option. I mean, He's immediately doubting, right? I mean, maybe not immediate, but, you know, as soon as he figures out, okay, this isn't working, he starts doubting God and comes up with other solutions and how am I going to fix it? But even in that, like, in that journey, in that, in that story, remember he's traveling with Sarah and, uh, and the, the king. Uh, they stay with the king. And uh, you've got to be pretty well off to be staying with the king, by the way. Abraham was doing all right. And, but the king, okay, this is a really powerful man, really powerful man. And he can, he can do whatever he wants. He's got multitudes of money. You would imagine, okay, now I don't know, I'm not 100% sure on how it works in these times, but I've got a pretty good idea. Um, this guy can have whoever he wants as far as women go. This is the king. I mean, he's got, he's got dibs, you know? I mean, really does. And Abraham comes along and visits, 100 plus years old, with his wife, around 90. And Abraham's concern is, I might not tell him that she's my wife because she's so hot he'll try and kill me so he can be with my wife. I'll tell him that he's my sister and then he'll just sleep with her. How hot was his 90-year-old wife, right? I mean, like, seriously. Like, this guy can have any woman on the planet and he's, he's lusting after his 90-year-old wife, right? I mean, anyway, that's a side point. I don't really have a point there. I just think that's crazy. Like, I'm like, how many 90-year-olds have you seen that, like, kings would be like, wow. Anyway, um, because this is not like, I don't know, like, it's not like he was going, oh, she's got a really sweet heart. Or, you know, I mean, this is like an entirely lustful driven thing. And it's a 90-year-old woman. I'm like, this is amazing to me. I'm just like, wow, okay. Um, but, but Abraham some, has some serious uh, insecurities as well, yeah. Um, but Abraham's, you know, he, he does this. And what happens? God goes nuts. He gets really angry at the king. Not Abraham, 
not Sarah, who are both in the wrong, right? They're the one lying and deceiving. And, and the king then gets really like, you know, told off and then goes to Abraham and goes, what are you doing, man? I could have slept with your wife. That would have been messed up. I would have gotten in real trouble. Like, you're God. Like, I had to find out through other means that you were screwing up. And God never tells Abraham off. Do you know what's mental? Is that 10, 15 years later, he does the same thing. He does it again with a different king, with the Pharaoh. And he does the same. He's like, oh man, well, my wife's really hot. Like, I better pretend she's my sister. And the whole thing happens again. And again, God doesn't get mad at Abraham or Sarah. Do you know what's interesting is Abraham, despite screwing up again and again and again, all the way through his story, he messes up. He has the kid with a wrong woman. He does all this stuff. God never tells Abraham off. You can read the story a hundred times. You'll never find a time where God gets angry with Abraham or tells him off. This is crazy. Why? Because Abraham is not the father of works. He's the father of faith. And his faith has made him righteous. And God only deals with him as though he's righteous. But what's interesting to me is he also only speaks of him as though he has faith. But to me, I'm like, I don't see lots of faith. I see him constantly doubting. Like if he had faith, he would go, well, God will protect me and my wife, and we'll just spend some time with his king. Like that's, that's a person of faith. A person of faith doesn't go, oh, maybe I should just manipulate the whole situation. He'll sleep with my wife, but it's only one night. That's fine, and I'll just deal with it. I'll get over the hurt and pain of that. Right? I mean, that's his, that's his job. That's his, that's his plan. Like, it's kind of crazy, right? Um, and this is who God says, great faith. I mean, have you ever, I don't know if you read um, in Hebrews 11, it's got the hall of faith. You know, this, this list of all these people that had amazing faith. And in Hebrews 11, Hebrews 11, 11 is one of my favorite Bible verses because in the middle of it, it says Sarah. And it talks about Sarah, Abraham's wife. It says, Sarah had faith that she would conceive even though she was barren and she never doubted or wavered. What? Like, it's like, what? That makes no sense at all. Because if you go back to Genesis 18, what does it say? It says, um, Abraham comes, and this is right after God has spoken to Abraham. He comes in, he says, Sarah, just spoke to God. And he says, we're going to have kids as many as the sands on the shore of the beach and as many stars in the sky. That's how many kids we're going to have. And Sarah goes, you and me. <laughs> and just laughs at him. And what happens? God shows up. Can you imagine you laugh at something God said and he shows up? And then he says, hey, Sarah, why are you laughing? It's such a weird, this, this whole passage is weird, right? But Sarah laughs at God's plan and God shows up and goes, hey, Sarah, why are you laughing? Uh, well, this is awkward, right? I mean, can you imagine how awkward you would feel? You would like, it's one of those moments where you know you would just want to shrink up and just be swallowed by the ground. Like when God shows up and calls you out, that's when you're like, okay, I want to. And then what does she answer? It's so funny. She goes, I didn't laugh. It's like, what? It's amazing. And then my, the answer after that is even better. God just goes, yes, you did. And that's the end of the story. That's like, I just love that story. She's like, you and me have a kid. <laughs> and he's like, why are you laughing at me, Sarah? He just shows up out of nowhere. Uh, I didn't laugh. Yes, you did. And then do you want to know the best footnote? What was her kid called when she did have the child? Laughter. Isaac, it means laughter. So it's kind of like a funny thing. I think that's God saying, hey, every time you say your son, just remember that you might laugh at what I say is possible, but I'm going to be proven to be the one laughing because what I say is possible is possible. It's this reminder for Sarah for the rest of her life that it doesn't matter how crazy, how big, how stupid and laughable the, the idea God has, it'll come about. But this is how Sarah responds, okay? The Hebrews 11, 11, Sarah never doubted or wavered, but had faith that 
she would be given a son despite her old age. Uh, what? And then later on, Sarah comes to Abraham and you think, okay, finally, Sarah's going to have her moment. I think this actually is maybe Genesis 18. I can't remember the, the reference to the other, earlier one. Um, and she says, Abraham, I've been pondering the word that God gave you. And you think, oh, this is quite good, right? I mean, Mary pondered the word that God gave her and she came about and had Jesus. I mean, pondering God's words are good. So she's been thinking about the prophecy and, wow, we're going to have these kids and that's great. And she goes to him and says, I've been pondering all these things and uh, I think you should sleep with our maid. And you're like, oh, crap, she really missed it. Like, you're like, you were so close, like, so close, but I feel like you missed something somewhere. But this is a woman that God says never doubted or wavered in her belief. I mean, does God, does God forget this whole period? And, like, he's up in heaven going, oh, talk about Abraham and Sarah. And, and Paul's like, well, well, tell me about them. And he's like, I can't remember much. Uh, just said he had really good faith. Like, I mean, did God forget? And, and I think this is beautiful because what does it say about how God looks at us? You see, someone that has righteousness, someone that he sees as righteous, someone that's been given this gift of righteous, he sees nothing but their righteousness. And you see, Abraham had literally, like Jesus talks about, the faith of the mustard seed. He didn't have much faith by the looks of it. And neither did Sarah. And yet God goes, these guys, whoa, that's the best exploit. Like, that's the father of faith. Like, I mean, that's like... You hit this tiny faith and God goes, wow, you're going to be my example for faith for all of humanity. And you think, oh, and I don't know about you, but I look at that and go, oh, thank God, because I can probably do that. Like, I can, I can doubt a lot. May I ask? <laughs> yeah, go. Um, so I think that's a good question because I think yes and no, or yes to both probably. Um, so I think ultimately what Jesus does on the cross is t- outside of time in one sense. So there's this crucifixion before the foundation of the earth. There's this decision on God's part. So even in the, the midst of it, you know, you see the fall in the garden and Adam and Eve fall and God goes, well, yeah, but I'm going to crush Satan's head. And he's, he's immediately prophesying that it's going to be okay. So he tells them the consequences, but he immediately prophesies that it's going to be okay. And I think there's something of, he, in Abraham, he, he's, he's grafted into something, but he's, he's, he's giving very worldly, real, raw, kind of, as they would understand it, as they would be able to engage with it. That's how he works with them. But then he goes, but see, this is what I'm talking about. It's, it's just like that with Jesus. So it's kind of like a chicken-egg thing, if that makes sense where it's not one causes the other, but it's actually they just both speak into the other. But Jesus is the central piece, obviously. Like, you can't take that away, and it, it just falls apart. Um, Abraham, it, he points to that, um, but he also probably was experiencing it, if that makes sense. Um, but yeah, so, and I think this is, this is the beauty for me, is that what does it show me? It shows me that I actually don't need incredible faith. Oh, that makes me feel good. If I can just have the faith of Abraham, if I can just have enough faith, if I, like, so to please God, it doesn't require this huge amount of faith. It just requires me to believe him on some level. But then actually, if we look at faith, and I think this is where I want to start talking about faith and start unpacking it, because I think we have a lot of connotations with faith. Most of Christianity are in agony because they have no concept of what faith is. And they, they, they make faith something that it just isn't. 
And so if you think of faith, you think of like stirring up a belief, trying to believe the right thing. I believe this. If I believe, then I'll have enough faith. If I, if I can just believe enough, then I'll have faith. And, and you, so we go, well, that person didn't get healed. And it's like, well, because of your faith. And then we go, well, I just need to believe harder. Well, how do you believe harder that someone's going to be healed? Like, I mean, it, it's, it's a horrible place because then you, you end up beating yourself up and I don't have enough faith. How do I get more faith? And, and, and what we fail to see is that again and again and again throughout the scriptures, Faith isn't something we create. Faith is a gift. Faith is given to us by God. And so actually when we open up the scriptures and we, we look at some of the top commentary on faith, we find that God doesn't require your faith. God requires you to have his faith. And actually what's interesting is if you go back and read some of those passages I've been reading and, and throughout the scriptures, we see again and again the faith in Jesus, faith in Jesus, faith in Jesus. Do you know that Actually, the more literal way to translate that in the Greek is the faith of Jesus. Not the faith in Jesus. But we don't like the faith of Jesus because it doesn't work with our traditional evangelical approach. Because we like to, if I believe in Jesus, I'll be saved. But actually, the, the connotation there is if you have the belief of Jesus, you'll be saved. And so actually, when it talks about if you just believe in Jesus, it's actually if you just have Jesus' belief in you. And so there's a very upside down way to see things where we make it all about us doing the right thing, us stirring up the right belief as opposed to God believing and giving us his belief. And so when we look at faith, um, you know, Ephesians is a great way to, to look at it. He, he talks about grace and he says, look, it's by faith through grace you're saved. And we see that, we've seen that in Romans 4.16, we see it in Romans 5.2, we see it in Ephesians, by grace through faith. So we've been given this abundance of grace, everything that we could ever need. He's poured it out on us, but it's through faith that we get there. So, um, you know, you might say, uh, I could say, uh, imagine you have 20 pounds in your ATM or 20 euros in your ATM and you want to get some money out. Um, how much money are you going to get out when you go to the ATM? You're not going to take 30 pounds out, are you? Because you don't have it. You have 20 pounds. And you're only going to take out what you know you have. Maybe you're even thinking, oh, I had a bill. So maybe actually that's come out. So maybe I only have like five pounds. So I don't know how much I can take out. But if I put a million pounds in your account and you didn't know it, how much would you take out? You'd still be like, oh, better be under 20 pounds. I don't know. And so actually it's the faith that we engage with what we have. And so God can give you everything. But to the degree that you believe that is how much you're going to actually experience it and walk in it and enjoy it. Um, and so... This is why when, uh, so again, Ephesians 2.8, Paul says, by grace, through faith, we step into everything. But he says, but, he says, that faith is a gift in case you were planning on boasting about that. Because what happens is in church, we boast about what we do, right? We don't overtly do it, but we subtly do it on some level or another. And the Jews were massive on this, right? So you would, you would boast about what you do. Well, I, I heal more people than that person. Or, oh, uh, yeah, I'm very good at prophetic work. Or, you know, we, 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 we like to think, look at me, I'm pretty good. I'm good at doing X, Y, or Z, whatever it is. Um, and then well, he's saying, well, look, it's not about your works. It's about your faith. So what do we do? We go, okay, yes. Yeah, so, well, obviously, we don't boast about what we do. It's not about how much I give to charity or how much I love my family. Or that's not what's important. It's my faith, of which I have much more than you. Right? And this is basically what we, it then evolves to is we then start ranking people on faith. So we go, oh, wow, Bill Johnson has loads of faith, so he's a better Christian than this person 
who's a better Christian than this person? Who's a better Christian than me, right? And I'm somewhere down in the bottom and this person's at the top. Or, you know, but we, we start ranking people based on how much faith they have, right? So it's like, wow, they can heal people because they have so much faith. How much better a Christian are they? And so uh, Paul really hits the nail on the head because he sees this coming. And he says, it's by grace through faith, but that faith is a gift. Don't even think about boasting about it. And I'm like, ooh, ah, ooh, you got me. Because that's what I'm thinking, right? If I can't boast about what I do, I'll at least boast about how much I believe. And this is when we start to look at um, the Bible doesn't demand faith from you. It supplies it. We talked about this uh, a couple of weeks ago, I think. But in Hebrews, it talks about the author and finisher of your faith. Jesus is the author of your faith. He creates faith for you, and then he continues it, and he finishes it. The whole process is a gift from Jesus. Now, it's not saying that we don't have small faith and grow our faith and, and get to a point where we have huge amounts of faith. There is a process. But it's not our process to work on and to build and to develop. It's a process of a gift. Um, the best way to see this is in Romans. It talks about faith comes by hearing. Now, this is the only place in the Bible, in the New Testament, that tells you how to get faith. It's the only way it tells you how. So there's places that say, look, you need more faith. That is a, that is a need at times. You need more faith. Um, but there's only one place that tells you how to do it, and it's in Romans. It says, faith comes by hearing the word of God. And it's not talking about the Bible. You know, that can be a method of hearing God's word. But the word of God is like God's living, active words, you know. So it could be, it's any time his spirit speaks to you, you know. So it can happen when you're reading the Bible. It can happen when you're listening to a sermon. It could happen while you're lying on the floor listening to worship music. It could happen while you're lying on the floor listening to Bon Jovi. I don't know. Um, I don't know who lies on the floor listening to Bon Jovi. But anyway. Um, but you know, I mean, it can happen in any situation. It can happen when you're driving down the road and you see a billboard and it speaks to you. Like, as long as God is speaking that active word of God, you receive faith. Faith comes by hearing the word of God. And so actually, the only way you grow in faith is to hear. Now, this then begs the question of like, well, what is faith? And actually, this is where we get messed up, that faith uh, isn't some sort of mystical thing that we drum up. Faith is, it's just at its root level, trust. It's trust, it's acceptance, it's saying, if I, could, if I could give you the best demonstration of faith in the world, it is to go, okay. It's to listen, hear, and then go, okay, that's faith. It's to hear something and accept it. And so it's the most passive thing you can do in the world. There's no real heavy engagement here. It's to listen and agree with what you hear. And this is why when faith comes, it comes by hearing God's word. And this is how Jesus is the author and the perfecter of your faith. Because Jesus speaks to you, you hear it, and when you say, okay, you've received faith. I have something to hold on to now. It's, it's so much easier than you need. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And so this is even like, you think of like, well, what saves me? It's not, it's not me coming to the conclusion, I believe in Jesus. It's me hearing that he believes in me. And I go, okay. It's not about me stirring up some belief. It's about him stirring up his belief. It's about him delivering his belief. It's about him supplying his faith, not about us creating our own faith. And actually, if anything, the gospel is not about you growing your faith. The gospel is about you losing your faith. 
So that's a, that's a concept. But let me, let me unpack that for you. Okay, so in the, in the Bible, it talks about doubt quite a bit. It talks about double-mindedness and these things. And double-mindedness and doubt are, are one and the same. And often we think of doubt as um, uh, unbelief, a lack of belief. So, you know, if we look at belief on this level, again, like we think, oh, wow, Bill Johnson heals everyone, so he's got lots of faith. And Bill Johnson has lots of faith. I'm not saying anything negative there. I'm just saying this is, we can see it from an outside perspective of like, wow, he must have built up his own faith really high. And then there's this person here, and then there's this person here, and my pastor here, and that person there, and then I'm down here. And I have a lot of, a lack of faith. Um, and, but I'll grow my faith and I'll get higher and higher and higher. But then it, it begs the question, well, what does it mean then when you have unbelief or faith? Is, well, if I have faith, I'm up here. If I have lack of faith, I'm down here. Well, how does that work if you go and look at um, Mark 9 and you look at the guy that brings his kids to be healed by Jesus and he brings him up a mountain, he's an epileptic son, and he says, Jesus, can you heal my, my, my son? And he says, well, I can if you believe, which is a really interesting uh, statement, right, to say to someone who's just brought their kid up a mountain, right? I mean, I'd say he has a good, a good inkling that Jesus can heal his son, right? Because otherwise, you're not taking your kid up a mountain. I mean, taking your kid out the front door most days is hard enough work. Never mind getting them up a mountain. Never mind when they have a seizure every five minutes. I mean, can you even imagine? This is a lot of work. I think he believed Jesus could heal. But his response is really interesting. What does he say to Jesus? He says, Jesus, I believe, help me with my unbelief. Well, that doesn't work if you think of unbelief and belief as a spectrum, does it? Because you can't believe and unbelieve at the same time. You know, if I was to say to you, you have that million dollars in your account, you can't say, I believe that. Help me not believe it. But I have unbelief as well. Like, how does that work? How can you believe you have a million dollars and believe you don't have a million dollars at the same time? You can't. Like, it doesn't work like that. And so... There's something else going on when we look at unbelief. And actually, it's just simple. When we look at the actual words in the Greek for doubt and, and, and these things, and often translate as double-mindedness, because that's what doubt is, is to have two minds. So it's actually not about having um, a lack of belief. It's about having too much belief, in one sense. Because what happens is God speaks to us and gives us a gift of faith. So maybe he says to you, you're going to start a business. And you go, wow, okay. You've just gained some faith. You've grown in your faith and you've been given something to hold on to and believe. But you might then turn around and maybe like Abraham, after a few weeks, you realize this is hard work. I don't actually know how to run a business. So that's a thought. I don't know how to run a business. Is that belief, that, that thing that you're trusting, that you're accepting, is that compatible with what God said? No. What about you, you open up your bank statement, and I've got the itchiest nose today, I don't know what's going on. Um, you open up your bank statement, and it says, minus $500. And you think, oh, how am I gonna start a business? I have no money. Is that a belief that's compatible with you're gonna own a business? No. And so what happens is actually, it's not a problem of a lack of belief, it's actually that we have placed our belief in two different realities. So God speaks to us and we say, okay, but then we also go, yeah, but, and we add a whole bunch of other stuff. And actually, unbelief is not not believing God enough. It's just choosing to believe other things as well. Does that make sense? It's choosing to have two beliefs rather than one. Sorry? 
Yeah, but I don't think it's even lack belief because I think oftentimes we're like that father. Oh, man, I don't know what's going on with my nose. I think I've got like some sort of weird allergy here. Um, I, th I think because you look at that father, he says, I believe you can heal my son. Now, he's probably heard all the stories of Jesus healing people. And so he believes you can heal his son, but he also has unbelief. It's not that he then goes, I also don't believe you can heal my son, but he's obviously got something else going on. There's other beliefs going on that feed into it. It doesn't diminish his belief that Jesus heals or can heal, but there's other stuff going on. And, and I don't know about you, I've done that before. I, I've seen amazing healings, but I get um, a cold and I doubt that God will heal me, you know? It's like, and, and what are my thoughts that wrap around my head? And it's like, well, but it's me. I mean, it's not that big a deal. Or, or maybe, well, this is just small healing. God only does big healings, you know? Or, oh, well, I've got that sin I did yesterday. I probably deserve this. Or it, whatever our belief is, whatever we're putting our belief is, it, it's contrary to what God has spoken. And so we, we, we run the risk of balancing these beliefs. And, and so actually the call for Christianity is not to, to build your faith. If, if anything, actually, I think all this stuff that we create as faith, that's what we're called to lose. We're called to lose our faith and hold on to simply what God is saying right there. What is, what is it that God has spoken to me? And you know what? This stuff doesn't need to be false, right? I mean, you open that bank account and it says minus $500. It's minus $500, right? Very rarely do the bank make mistakes like that, but it probably is minus $500. And so that's not, it's not that it's not real. And it's not that you go, well, I'm going to, uh, you know, spend 10 grand anyway. Right? I mean, so it's not like you just do stupid things either and you ignore the fact that you're in debt, but you, you, you acknowledge that, yeah, okay, this is minus 500 or whatever, but you don't allow it to feed into my beliefs about my business. God has said, I'm going to start a business, so I'm going to start a business. Now, I might have to deal with that first or I might have to ask God, well, what are you saying? And this is the thing as well. He grows your faith. If you need faith in an area, so I, God says, I'm going to heal you and you're in a wheelchair and you go, I've been prayed for a hundred times. That's a, an, an unbelief. That's a belief in something different. I've never seen someone get out of a wheelchair. That's a belief in something different. Now, those are okay beliefs to have. They're not helpful and they're unbelief, but, but they're, they're real, they're raw. That's what we feel. I think God never wants us to run away from that. He's not wanting us to just bottle it up and push it down. But I think what we do is we take those to God and we say, well, God, I've never seen someone healed of a wheel, from being in a wheelchair. I need you to speak into that. I need you to give me a gift of faith. And maybe you'll say, go watch this YouTube clip and you'll see someone get healed of a wheelchair. Or maybe say, go to this meeting and you'll see someone get healed. Or maybe you get healed. Or I, I don't know. You know. What I love about that story in Mark 9, right? He goes, I believe, help me with his, my unbelief. What does he then do? He just heals his son. That will help you. That will get rid of your unbelief, you know? Um, and so it doesn't, it's not that we have to individually work. And, and so this is the thing as well with faith is sometimes we, 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 we make it, well, I've got to get the perfect faith. And actually sometimes God goes, no, you don't have perfect faith, but I, I'm good. I mean, like Abraham, maybe. Um, and so I think um, it's, it's important that as we engage with faith, we recognize that faith is a gift, but there's a, there's a participation in it. There's an asking God, speak to me. God, I want to, you know, if, if you've got an error in your life, you think, I'm not seeing breakthrough. I don't know what's going on. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to do this. I don't know what to believe or whatever it is, or I feel that I've got these doubts going on, or take them to God and go, God, I want you to speak into this. I want a gift of faith. And so it's, it's important that you engage with that and you're growing in that, but growing only comes by hearing from God. And so um, it's, it's just a constant journey of, I just want to hear your voice, God, and I just want to hold on to that. And holding on to anything else isn't helpful. Um, even if it's right, it might be right, but if it's not what he's saying right now, you don't need it. 
You know, you don't need to be grabbing a hold of it right now. Grab a hold of what he's actually said. And this is what I find often. People go, oh, I don't know what to do, or I, I, I'm not sure what, to, what I should be doing, or this or that. And often if you ask them, well, what was the last thing God told you? What was the last thing that you heard from God? If they go back to that, they realize that's where they've got a problem in their life, is that God spoke something, but they've got a whole bunch of other stuff they're believing that's contrary to it. And they need to work that dynamic out. They need to deal with that unbelief. They need to lose that unbelief or at least ask God to help them grow in that belief and, and, and figure out that area of, of what's going on. And, um, and so anyway, I kind of a, a bit of a roundabout uh, all over the place look at faith. But let's take a, let's take a five minute break um, and uh, we'll come back at about quarter two um, because I want to go into Romans 5 and talk about that if that's all right. Go over to the Grace Course. You can watch ahead. The whole series is there on video if you want it, um, along with a whole host of different teachings on hell, on judgment, on uh, faith, on sin, and a whole host of different uh, topics that uh, hopefully will bring life and encourage you and, and challenge the way you think. Um, and so I'll see you next week for our session on Romans 5 to 6. Be blessed, my friend.